everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Entrepreneurs Rx. I'm your host, John Schufelt, and with me today is Dr. Andrew Lee. Uh, Dr. Lee graduated from Harvard Medical School. Uh, his BA was also from Harvard, and uh, he started a company after, we'll get into this in depth, we started a company called Bowie, which the more I read about it and look into it, it is like right up my alley as far as things I'm really interested in. And so this will be a really phenomenal podcast. So, Andrew, thanks for joining. Oh, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's uh, let's go back. You uh, First off, how did you end up in medical school? What was your background? And then uh, give us that story. Oh, sure. I think it was a pretty typical uh, you know, story. I um, went through undergrad wanting to be a doctor. Uh, you know, first off, so, um, you know, applied straight from, uh, undergrad went, you know, straight to medical school. I, my dream was to be a neurosurgeon, uh, because I think I'm a bit of a masochist and, um, <laughs> and, you know, got, got through three years, uh, and then had, um, kind of like a, a light bulb moment. And, you know, did a kind of a 180 in terms of my life path and started a company and have been running it ever since. So that's really cool. So you got into what neurosurgery program did you start in? Oh, I, I actually didn't get into a neurosurgery program yet. I was about to apply. Oh, got um, it. So, yeah, I was my I finished my third year. I was going to take a year to do a master's in public policy at the Kennedy school. And then I uh, came up with this idea for Bowie. And I actually, I remember I went to the Kennedy school for a week, two days really. And then in lecture, I, I got up and I was like, sorry, I can't do this. And I walked out and um, dropped out of the, the MPP program and started Bowie, um, ran it for three years on sabbatical from medical school. Uh, and then ultimately I had to go back because the school was basically like, you know, either you graduate or, or get out. Um, and so I, for six months, kind of the team kept going. Um, I was working kind of 18 hours, uh, you know, I'd be 12 hours in the hospital and then six hours after work, uh, you know, study or, uh, working on buoy. And then I was able to graduate, um, somehow. Uh, no. and then just kept running the business. So I never went to residency and kind of the dream to, you know, be a practicing doctor, you know, died, uh, uh, while a different dream bloomed. <laughs> That's really cool. So I, so I recently had a, uh, a neurosurgeon on who left neurosurgery after seven years. She did her, she did a, you know, medical school residency practice for seven years and then started the company and it takes, and I don't need to tell you this, but it takes a tremendous amount of guts to do what you did. I mean, because you have your lifelong dream, you know, you go to Harvard undergrad, Harvard medical school, you know, kind of the bastions of higher education in the U S and then say the hell with this. You're like Elon Musk, you know, you're starting your PhD at Stanford and walk out the door and say, I have a bigger dream. But I have to say, that's pretty cool. Oh, what, what, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's very generous of you to say, but you know, to be you know really honest with you, um, there are a lot of risk mitigating, uh, uh, factors that I kind of leaned into, um, that helped me reduce the amount of courage, uh, that I, I needed to, to make the leap. 
So, um, so what was the risk? So that's interesting. So for for example, so I've like I'm literally headed out this afternoon to do an EM shift, uh, emergency medicine shift. And the one thing I always had to fall back on was, you know, if this all blows up and it blew up a few times, I could always go back and and, and just focus on practicing medicine and you know have a have a have a great experience. What risk mitigation? So I was kind of a, you know, the P word in the sense that I didn't take the big leap of faith off the cliff. What risk mitigating factors did you have? Yeah, and I think that um, there's a conception or there's a perception that you do need to take that kind of big leap. Um, but in my view, it's more about getting started. And I think those are two different things. Um, you can get started and still risk mitigate. Yeah. And just like you did, John, I mean, your career is incredible and what you've been able to accomplish is incredible. And you have a backup like in place uh, that doesn't make, you know, uh, anything you did any less courageous uh, and, and, and amazing. So in my world, um, the way I thought about it was I could have just finished medical school and then started the business. But I was very intentional on in starting the company before I finished. Reason being, okay, let's say it doesn't work out. I could go back. I could, like you, you know, your line of thinking, John, I could go back, finish my fourth year, apply for residency. And if anyone asks about those three years that I took off, I mean, I could have any number of reasons why I had to take those three years off. Yeah, great reason. Um, yeah. And then I would just go and be a doctor and that would be my backup plan. And there was actually this really great book, uh, the originals, uh, by Adam Grant, uh, who's actually an advisor of Bowie. Um, uh, and in the book, he actually describes this decision about, okay, there are founders who either take the leap and basically quit their full-time job, you know, jump into something wholehearted, or those that keep their full-time job, but very importantly, they get started, meaning they try on the weekends to validate their ideas, validate their business model, validate business assumptions, and they have a fallback, which is they can just keep working. And the research actually, you know, if you were to pull 100 people and ask them like, hey, which one do you think is more successful? I would venture to guess that the majority would say the former, that, you know, it's the folks that, you know, you know, jumped off the cliff and just said, like, I'm going to do it. Um, but actually, it turns out that the latter is more successful. And the reason why is that they are able to overcome a lot of what kills a business to begin with early, which is they're able to validate their business model. They're able to validate their business assumptions, many, many of which would have killed them um, had they not figured out where their assumptions were wrong. And so when you think about kind of the pressures of, okay, if I quit my job, let's say I have a mortgage or let's say, you know, I have some fixed costs in my life, like the intense pressure to just forget the experimentation that's necessary to figure out how to do it. You just kind of go for it. The likelihood of success while still there um, isn't mitigated from like a experimentation perspective versus the latter that kind of do or die pressure is not there. So you actually have the time and the space to incrementally learn and validate up until the point where it's so obvious that your business is legit, that you would just go for it. 
And so kind of the same thing happened to me for three years. I was on sabbatical. Again, I had a fallback. If it doesn't, nothing works out. I just go back to school and I had no fixed costs. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have a house. You know, I was like, my fixed cost was zero essentially. And then after three years, I was like, you know, this is a legitimate business. Like we can make something really big out of this. So my decision point was, okay, uh, either I can go back to residency and the business fails because I left, or I go back to residency and the business takes off and I missed out on this amazing opportunity. So the math was just like, didn't work. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'll just stick with the business. But I had flipped over so many cards by then that I had way more information in terms of making my decision. The key though, was I started. And so anyway, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox, but no, that's no, not like I- awesome. So, so I've read Adam Grant before, but I've never even heard of the book, The Originals. So now, of course, I need to go go read that. That sounds awesome. Um, and it's really interesting. I would have thought the burn the, you know, the burn the ship's mentality would literally force, not quite force success, but but basically make, you know, just get built, give you the resistance and perseverance you needed to succeed. But but your but the corollary is true. It takes off a lot of the risk. And a lot of things that kill startups is this lack of any, you know, lack of any revenue at all that you can't support yourself or the business. So that's interesting. I've got to go. I have to go read that book. So you mentioned an aha moment when you were in medical school or when you were in your first two days of the Kennedy School of Government. What was the aha moment? Like what what was that wake up call for you? Uh, the, the wake up call was, uh, I guess, multifaceted. Um, but the first one was my, one of my last rotations in third year was, uh, in the emergency room, uh, kind of right up your alley, John. Um, and it was at MGH in Boston. And I kept seeing all these patients who were Googling their symptoms and then reading something online and then showing up at MGH. And I was on these like 24 hour shifts. And I still remember at like 2 AM, I saw a woman with a jammed finger, uh, followed by a guy who had had an ulcer on his foot from a history of poorly controlled diabetes. The ulcer had become infected and we had to amputate his leg cause he was getting septic. And I still remember, you know, talking to the first person and be like, Hey, you're fine. Like you should go home and kind of this almost like, why, why is this person here? Like they have a jammed finger. And, you know, she pulls out these printouts from WebMD telling me why she thought her finger was broken and why she didn't think, you know, we should, you know, that's why she had come in. That's why she had waited. And that was like a $2,000 visit that someone had to pay for. On the other hand, you know, the very next person like, Hey, you know, I'm really sorry, sir. You know, if you had come in a couple of days ago, could have saved your leg. He pulls out these printouts from the internet to telling me, like, Oh, you know, this is why I waited. This is why I don't think you should amputate. And right around then, unfortunately I had a few family members get really sick. Uh, one of them being my dad, he had a mini stroke. TIA. Um, I found out about it months later and he did, didn't go to the doctor, uh, like when he had the TIA and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, why didn't you call me? Um, I actually have two younger sisters who are both doctors too. So the guy has like infinite access to telemedicine, like free telemedicine. And I mean, well, he paid for it, but like in a different way, marginal <laughs> like, cost free. <laughs> I was like, why didn't you call us? And he was like, you guys were working. Okay. Why didn't you Google it to figure out what to do? And he was like, I don't trust what I'd find on Google. Uh, and for me, that was like this emotional aha where I was like, there's gotta be a better way, you know? And, and so it really just, you know, I was being taught, you know, using up to date, all these like clinical papers. And I was like, 
if you can teach me with my leaky, leaky memory, you can teach a computer program. And if they just gave away that computer program to the world, people would actually be able to consume care intelligently. And that was the aha. And so I started working on it during my summer going into the Kennedy School. Had much of the ideas, had the founding team kind of together and started at the, at the Kennedy School. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to go write a paper right now. I want to go work on this. Like, this seems like way more important. So that's what, like um, how it all kind of happened. So, so, so tell me, what is the, what's the foundation of Bowie? So I have a sense I've, I've obviously read about it, checked the website out, but, but give everybody the background of Bowie and what, it, what you're aiming to do. What problem do you want to solve? Yeah. And I, sorry, I should have like more cleanly told the story and described kind of the idea, but yeah. So the, so the problem that I, I feel like I really became obsessed with was that the average person, the average patient, the average consumer isn't really able to make their own decision about what is the right next action for them because they essentially almost have to become like a doctor combined with an insurance expert in real time. So there's this massive knowledge gap that prevents consumers from actually being able to consume and or shop for care because we didn't have like, you know, there's not a course in college or high school that taught you like when you have knee pain, here's the differential diagnosis. Here's how you should think about the knee pain. Here are the possible diagnoses, you know, like, that this is not part of our, our educational process. And so what ends up happening is that people, 72% of Americans start their healthcare journey by Googling their symptoms and essentially having to read articles online, regardless of the quality, trying to become a medical student or a doctor about your knee pain in real time is extremely difficult. While it's hurting you. While it's hurting you, exactly. Yeah. And you combo that with the complexity of American healthcare with like what's covered, what's not. It's just like a, it adds to the complexity in a way that just makes no sense. So we built this AI technology by, for four years, we basically locked ourselves in an apartment and did a meta-analysis per diagnosis. So literally read the, the primary literature that would roll up into a textbook, like a UpToDate or a Dynamed. Like a, um, and use those primary, that primary literature to build a massive statistical graph of medicine. So one that would understand like, okay, risk factors like smoking increase your risk of pneumonia by a factor of five based on these three papers. Pneumonia has some probability based on these three papers. Pneumonia has some uh, correlation with a fever of 90% based on these three papers. And so in building the graph, we could then build an AI program that was not a decision tree, which is how typical symptom checkers were built. This one would actually reason kind of like a clinician could reason where it's like, okay, of the tens of thousands of questions I could possibly ask, I have a limited period of time with this person. Which one is statistically most relevant? I'll ask it, patient answers. In real time, thousands of diagnoses get re-ranked thousands of questions get re-ranked and the next most logical question gets asked. We then launched that in 2017 with the idea that the more people use it, eventually we would get enough data to learn. And actually that just happened earlier this year. So we've been live since 2017. So five years of data 
we now have 30 million users who come to Bowie every single year looking for help um, on Bowie.com. And we've just kind of hit the threshold of enough data where um, as people have used it and they told us what happened to them, where they were headed, what they think, you know, what their doctor ended up telling them was wrong, we could actually learn and improve. And now uh, when we release this newly machine learned algorithm, this means that every single person who sees it, actually, we can incrementally get better. And so um, that's what we've been doing as a kind of a core product. In terms of the company, generally speaking, uh, we initially were selling to um, insurance companies and self-insured uh, employers. And now we are actually turning into a marketplace where different services, whether it be digital health companies or over-the-counter products, or soon to be brick and mortar doctors who are running their own practice can actually build onto Bowie, where the job of this marketplace is to make healthcare shoppable by the consumer by giving them the tools and knowledge and understanding uh, of what a clinically trained and a insurance trained individual would have at their fingertips. So you don't know what's going on. We can help you figure out what the likeliest differential is. If you know what the diagnosis already is, understanding what treatments are available and how to think through which one to pick first now enables a consumer to actually make real decisions about you know, what the best next action is and actually transact that directly on Bowie. So that's you know where how we're evolving as a business. Okay, so 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 I, I've worked with some other AI tools, and uh, I'm a um, um, on the board of one of them. This uh, for providers actually. One of the things that always challenged me, and I and I love AI, but one of the things that always challenged me, and I think you answered it, but the question is the relevance of it. So I go on Bowie and I put all my symptoms in, and Bowie comes back and, and asks me questions. And like you said, reorders the questions based on how I answer, which is AI, which is perfect. And then, and then it gives me a it gives me a suggestion. Hey, I think you could have um, a migraine headache. And then I I go to this doctor and and I come back and now presuming the physician's right, I say to Bowie, Oh, I don't have a migraine headache. I've got X Y Z. I have occipital uh, neuralgia. And the patient types in occipital neuralgia, and then Bowie takes that information as if it's true, as if it's 100% accurate, and puts it in. The question I have is, I guess, how do you know the outcome was actually the outcome? Because you're affecting the algorithm in some respects, not the algorithm, the machine learning in some respects. How do you know it's true? Yeah, the how do you know it's true is actually one of the hardest problems to solve. and. Our view, there's, we have two views on, on how to solve that problem. One is the law of large numbers. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why we've been focused for so long on having Bowie be used by the most number of people of any AI product in this realm um, is you need the largest sample size. And so, you know, we've had tens of millions of users every single year kind of use the product. And that, with that sample size, a lot of the, you can see signal from noise, essentially, with enough data. The other um, element, which is in development, but not yet something we have live, is this idea that, to your point, um, John, what is the truth 
is not really the first diagnosis potentially given by the doctor. Right. Uh, it's really, if you like, if you think about it, if we had infinite time as a, as a, as a doctor with our patients, the real truth kind of plays out over a, uh, until they basically resolve. So either you have like a gold standard diagnostic that you could do, in which case, obviously that would be an answer, but otherwise, if there's not a gold standard diagnostic, you would just need the benefit of time to see how the disease evolved to then ultimately make a call in terms of what the real underlying pathology was. So really, if you think about where the answer lies, okay, is it in the EMR? I would argue no. It's a bit of the truth is in the EMR, but I wouldn't say the whole truth is in the EMR because hypothetically speaking, let's say a patient goes to you, John, you give an initial diagnosis, they go back to their primary care doctor, it's in a different EMR system. So if you integrated with a single EMR system or there's not a way to kind of tie those two events together, one would argue that the truth is not in the EMR. Is it in the claims data? I would argue also no. What if a person goes to the doctor, gets initial diagnosis that gets billed to claims? You would argue, okay, well, maybe insurance, you know, people stick with the same insurer for two years. So in a two-year time frame, you'd be able to see like what the truth was. Well, if I had debilitating back pain and I went to go see a doctor, I went home and I did the physical therapy that the doctor suggested and I got better. On paper, that actually looks exactly the same as someone who had debilitating back pain, went to the doctor, went home and just lived with the back pain for two years and didn't see anybody. The underlying diagnoses and also like what the outcome was are totally different, but it's not really captured by claims either. I, I would argue that the true gold standard truth is either a gold standard diagnostic or what the patient told you what happened to them over a long period of time. And so the way we see about this is like building a longer term relationship with the patient such that we would actually know granularity of like when the resolution happened. And if you have that data, in many ways, that data doesn't exist, which is really exciting because then from a feedback perspective, you know, doctors don't really have a report card. Um, you know, there's, it's kind of hard for a doc to know, like across my, my, my panel, uh, was I right or was I wrong for a majority of those cases, unless they did kind of circle back. If we could actually provide that data to an individual doc, I feel like that would be game-changing in terms of understanding not just how good a doctor is, but for an individual doctor, how they can improve. Totally. So does the patient, so does the patient, they go on Bowie, they do, they do this AI-driven assessment. Do they, do they then print that out or does that go into the medical record? Is there any sort of interoperability with uh, HIEs? Um, not yet. So that's something that we're definitely working on. Um, one of the use cases for tying into an HIE um, is much stronger with the build out of the marketplace than it was previously. I think one of the challenges we had was what is the value prop to the consumer in being able to pull down their medical records? We struggled with that value prop for a long time. So now though that we have this marketplace being built out, it becomes much more useful to have the medical record. And so that's like on the roadmap now that we're evolving as a business. Right. 
What has been the biggest challenge that you faced from the time, you know, you were back in medical school and had your aha moment? What are some of the challenges you face and how did you get over them? Yeah, I would say um, the hardest external challenge, and I, I want to make that distinction quickly, is the, the hardest external challenge has been um, figuring out the business model in healthcare. Um, with the misalignment of incentives between the, you know, who provides the care typically and then who pays for the care, um, it becomes very challenging to figure out who to align with when and how combo with the fact that most players in healthcare are very, uh, large organizations. The sales cycle in healthcare is very slow. And so the pace at which you learn about whether your idea is good or not, or whether your hypothesis is true or not, the pace is very slow. So as, comp as compared to, I guess, more typical, you know, let's say a social network or any kind of direct consumer business in other industries, the throughput is so quick that you're able to like test and learn very quickly in healthcare sales cycles for payers is multiple years sales cycle for employers, usually 12, 18 months, maybe health systems, 12, 18 months on the sh shorter end pharma a little bit faster. But if you think about the regulatory component, six, 12 months, and then what's left <laughs> become a, cons you know, you go direct to consumer. Well, you know, the willingness to pay out of pocket, you know, is somewhat focused on certain areas and, and not others. And so that is in and of itself challenging. And so figuring out the business model, I think in healthcare is the hardest external challenge that, you know, we've uh, been navigating for, for some time. And then I would say the biggest challenge overall through all of this has been an internal one. And that's really kind of overcoming my, like my own imposter syndrome. I uh, am my own kind of fear of the unknown. Um, I think, you know, being a doctor affords you so much certainty. Um, you know, John, you, you referenced it, right? Like you can make a very healthy living being a doctor and, and knowing you show up to work, you know, you see a certain number of patients, you go home and you have a great paycheck. And the world looks at you in a certain way as, as a doctor, um, and, you know, starting something yourself or running a business, there's so much more uncertainty and that uncertainty is both external, but I think the bigger, the harder part is the internal piece of like waking up and being like, should I be doing this? Like, what am I doing with my life? Am I the right person to do this? Like, I'm just a doc, you know, I'm just like a, you know, I'm just a med student. I, I don't know what I'm doing. This is my first job. You know, like a lot of those internal, um, demons and learning how to corral them and overcome them so that you could face every day with courage. You know, you could go after your business with courage, uh, is like, I would say the, one of the hardest things I've learned. Yeah, that's interesting. I used to call them my three, my 3 AM ceiling fact, ceiling fan talks, or I'd wake up and say, I, I just had a dark night of the soul. And I always <laughs> go back to this, um, Theodore Roosevelt poem that you probably know called man in the arena. And you know, I've only read that. It's on my wall, like 10 feet away from me. I've only read it about 10,000 times. But it's funny. I always hear people talk and I'm like, dude, like I, I'm the king of the imposter syndrome. Like I barely got out. I, you know, I could barely spell Harvard and would never have gotten into it. I barely got out of high school. Like I'm the king of having the imposter syndrome to this day. And so all these people are like, oh my God, I can't be perfect. I'm like, you know, dude, I am so far from perfect. And if I can do it, you can do it. But it's funny 
how many really competent people, of which I don't believe I'm one, but how many really competent people have imposter syndrome? Yeah, I actually read this amazing quote from the um, founder of Social Capital, uh, ex-Goldman Sachs exec who owned the Warriors and was kind of the initial um, leader of like SPACs. And he said, uh, in, you know, he's a billionaire and he was like, the crazy thing about imposter syndrome is that the more successful you are, the worse it gets. Because with every new thing that you succeed, you're like, oh, should I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And so um, it's kind of like interesting and it becomes a thing where I feel like one of the big unlocks in life is learning how to manage and corral and succeed within, um, you know, in the face of that imposter syndrome. Yeah. Or do you let it paralyze you because you can't get out of your own way? And, and you know, I'm, you know, I always, I always meet people and I would say, oh my God, they're fragile perfects. And it's these kids and young adults who their whole life has just been so scripted and they've just nailed it at every step and they have a little bit of discouragement and they just totally, you know, they break apart. I'm like, really, this, this, this knocked you off the rails? Because this to me seems like a normal, you know, before noon sort of thing. And I think they're so used to being just dead on accurate with everything. They just can't take any sort of adversity. What, what adversity did you have growing up that, because, you know, one of the things with being an entrepreneur is resilience, and you obviously have it. What did you, what did you have growing up that steeled you for this job, for this role? It's, uh, it's a good question, John. You know, to be honest with you, my childhood was pristine, like very loving parents. I um, succeeded at anything I wanted to try, to be honest with you. Um, and, yeah, like I was an athlete, and so I learned how to lose and like pick yourself back up. But I wasn't an athlete to the extent that, you know, like I, I personally think uh, entrepreneurs that played sports in college and beyond um, have a lot of the training in terms of resilience necessary to make it as an entrepreneur because they're able to kind of pick themselves up after something very devastating that, you know, they've lost or they've had an injury or, you know, they're not able to continue their career. They're able to kind of pick themselves back up and 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 keep going. Um, I didn't have any of those types of life experiences, to be honest with you. What I did have was um, I had an immigrant story, uh, and so my parents escaped from Vietnam on a boat after the Vietnam War. They almost died, uh, you know, multiple times over. Somehow made it here, and you know, ever since I was a little kid, they told us the story of how they escape from Vietnam on a boat with a 50% chance of living. And now that they're here, uh, you know, it was, it was all about like making the most of your, 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 your opportunity, because you could have just grown up in Vietnam and had no opportunities at the time. Now Vietnam thriving, but you know, at the time that was very much true. And, um, I think that was like a really big driver for me to always take the less kind of beaten path and say like, you know what, I'm going to take the risks that I want to take because there's only one life and I'm just going to keep going. Um, and then over time, I think just having, you know, the entrepreneurial life, I've been in it now for nine years. There's every single day is really hard and it's now steeled me to the point where, you know, something happens and, you know, for the most part, like I'm good, just keep going. Just got to keep running. 
and, and just keep putting in the effort and showing up, you know, that's, uh, so I would say I learned more in, um, the, in the act of being an entrepreneur than I did previous to that. And then previous to that, I would say, uh, kind of my immigrant story, um, really affected my life decision-making. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I always go back to that old saying, fall down seven times, get up eight. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's if you don't get up, you're going nowhere. But I can imagine growing up, hearing that story, you, you'd almost have to like, wow, I am really lucky. And I have a say, I don't have the same sort of story, but I have an oddly similar perspective, I guess you could say. And But I'm like, wow, I'm really fortunate to be here. I am not going to let a day go by where I'm not just trying to kill it. That's, that, that's a pretty cool modus operandi. Cool. Well, Andrew, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you? Cause you are truly inspiring. Oh, uh, it's very generous of you, but you can reach me uh, at Andrew at Uh That's my email. And then you can also find me on Twitter. Um, Andrew underscore lay underscore MD. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. I actually don't know my LinkedIn handle off the top of my head, but I'm sure if you just search, uh, Andrew, and actually my last name is pronounced lay. I even mispronounced it myself, but yeah, uh, <laughs> you just find me on Andrew lay and Bowie health and you'll be able to find me. Thanks Andrew. So I actually found you on LinkedIn. So you're, you're actually relatively easy. Well, Andrew, this has been great. Thank you so much. And we'll have everything in the show notes on how to contact him and Andrew's uh, amazing background. So thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening.